Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, we're one week from our Christmas Eve services. Next Sunday, we'll be gathering. If you show up at nine, you'll be really early. Um, and so we've got four Christmas Eve services next week, 10, 11.30, 1, and 2.30. Uh, you can go to christmas at gateway.com to RSVP for that and let us know when you're coming. Uh, I've been encouraging you to invite people. I've actually invited three folks, and two of them have said yes, they're able to come. One of them has said they're not able to come. Um, all three of them have thanked me for inviting them. And so even when you invite people who don't normally go to church, they will appreciate it, that you thought of them and care for them. And so I hope you'll do that and, and join us next week for those services. Uh, today's the last message in this series that we're doing on the first part of John chapter 1, uh, where we've called it the Word Made Flesh. And that's really the focus of today's message. And, and it's interesting to me as I've been pondering this, because in a world where everything's amazing, right, isn't that how they, oh, this... This Christmas light display, it's amazing. This deal on Amazon, it's amazing. This, this show, it's amazing. This music, it's amazing. Right? Everything's amazing, right? And everything gets so hyped up. And if everything's amazing, then what's really amazing? My question as I've wrestled through this, this message in preparation is if everything's amazing, in a world where everything's amazing, how do you communicate something that truly is amazing? Because that's what we're looking at today when we think about Jesus, the eternal word of God made flesh. See, when things really are amazing, it's, it's disappointing to be kind of bored by them. I have a friend who, uh, that, that's how he experienced the Grand Canyon. He goes to the Grand Canyon and here's what he said after he went. He goes, well, oh golly, what a gully. <laughs> and you're like, dude. It's the Grand Canyon. Like, and he stands up there and he's like, well, is that it? Let's go home. And it's like, what? I mean, this is, it's grand. It's one of the wonders of the world. It's amazing. And, and I think it's so possible maybe even for this story of Christmas to be so familiar that we get up to it and we go, yeah, oh, okay, is that it? Anything else? And what we're looking at today, the word becoming flesh is truly Amazing. Here's what Andreas Kostenberger said. He's a commentator and scholar. He says this, this is the most amazing event in all of history. The eternal, omnipotent, that means all-powerful, omnipresent, that means all-everywhere, infinitely holy Son of God took on human nature and lived among humanity as one who was both God and man at the same time, in one person. Now, if you've heard that before, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I tried to read it slowly. <laughs> because he's right. This is the most amazing event in all of history. This infinitely big God becoming vulnerable and small. One God and man together. It's incredible. The author, Dorothy Sayers, she said this. We may call this doctrine exhilarating, doctrine of the incarnation, or we may call it devastating, we may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish, but if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? This is a remarkable truth, and what we're looking at in this particular series is the significance of Jesus coming. We've said that Matthew and Luke provide the narrative. They provide what happened as uh, Jesus came into the world. John describes why. John describes why it's a significant thing, and what we're going to see today in these verses, 14 to 18, 
is that this particular passage, it unveils two big realities about Jesus and two big realities about us. That's what we're going to see here in this text. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we look at Jesus, the Son, bringing your revelation to us, would you give us revelation in our hearts? Would you open the eyes of our hearts and allow us to see the glories and the majesties and the wonders of the word becoming flesh? I pray that in Christ's name, amen. So this passage unveils two big realities, first about Jesus, And the first one is this, is that Jesus is the full revelation of God. Jesus is the full revelation of God. The summary verse of this passage is verse 18. If you have your Bible, go down and look at this. And John wraps everything he's been saying up with these words in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. You know, that's true, right? no, No one had seen God. He says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, this word made flesh, John wraps all this up and says what what Jesus has come to do is to make this God known. No one has ever seen him, but in Jesus now we see him. He is made known. That, That phrase at the end of verse 18, look at it, it says he has made him known. That phrase made him known is, is that same Greek phrase is used throughout the book of Acts when it describes people telling a story of something that had happened. Right, so when Paul is traveling around and he's planting all these churches among the Gentiles, he reports back to the church that sent him and he tells them, he narrates to them everything that took place. That's the same word. So what this is saying is that Jesus is the narration of God. Jesus takes the guesswork out of what God's like. He's making him known. He's revealing him in a full way. How does he do this? Well, go back up to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt. That word dwelt, you can circle that if you're a person that writes in your Bible. I don't know what you do if you've got got it on your phone. Highlight it maybe. That word dwelt literally means pitched his tent or tabernacled. And we're going to see in a moment is that that's a significant thing because in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt among his people, where God lived among his people. The presence of God was made known in the tabernacle. And so it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus pitched his tent among us. This is a way of saying Jesus is God. He's revealing who God is. Now, all throughout this passage, especially, well, really really the whole thing, there's lots of references to Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. And so I want to actually take some time, and and we'll spend the bulk of our time on this first point in this message, but I want to actually ask you to turn in your Bible, go way left to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, that's on page 73. Exodus chapter 33. That's page 73. If you uh, aren't as familiar with the Bible, it goes Genesis, Exodus. So just right on the kind of front end of that Bible is Exodus chapter 33. And I want to work through a little bit of Exodus 33 and 34 because if you understand what's happening there, you actually see that John is saying in, in John 1 that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of everything that we see in Exodus 33 and 34. For context's sake, the people of Israel had been stuck in slavery in Egypt. They had been rescued by God through Moses. They had had this exodus out of Egypt, and they're kind of now in the desert, and they're hoping to go into the promised land, and that's kind of the context of what's going on in Exodus 33. The other big piece of the context is in Exodus 32, the people committed a serious sin. Exodus 32 is the incident of the golden calf, where while Moses is up meeting with God, the people say, you know what? It's really hard to follow a God you can't see. Pause there. Anyone else think it's hard to follow a God you can't see? Yeah. So we have a little sympathy for them. They said, this is hard to follow a God who can't see. Hey, let's, we got all this gold. We ransacked all this gold from the Egyptians when we left. Why don't we kind of melt it down and... and Create it a statue, and we'll say, you know what, this is Yahweh, this is our God, because at least then we can see this representation, and we'll think, okay, now I can see God, what he's like. So that's what happens in Exodus 32, and Moses is very, very mad, God is very, very mad, and here's what it says in the beginning of Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. He says, all right, guys, you've been in this wilderness place. It's time to go in the land. This is what God's saying. Verse two, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So all the enemies that you've been worried about, I'm gonna get rid of them. I'm gonna drive them out. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So, so pause there a second. God's saying, listen, you're going into the promised land. I'm sending you there. I'm going to take care of all your enemies. You're going to have a land flowing with milk and honey. Everything you ever dreamed about when you thought about going to a promised land, you're going. Are you excited? Yeah. But then he continues. Verse 3, the middle. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. You know what God's saying? Hey, good news. You're going in the promised land, everything you ever wanted, but I'm not coming with you. Because if I go with you, y'all are so bad, I'm gonna probably destroy you on the way. You ever have that moment as a parent where you're like, I just, if I say a word to my kids, I'm gonna kill them. <laughs> so I'm just gonna not say anything right now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a walk, I'm gonna count to 10, Right, that's what God's saying. Like, I'm not going with you. You can go. It'll be great. I'm not coming. I actually preached on Exodus 33 a few years ago on Christmas Eve, kind of a weird Christmas Eve message. <laughs> Let me just ask you, if God gave you everything you wanted and everything you dreamed about, he gave you that job and he gave you that spouse and he gave you those kids, and you didn't just have kids, but they were great kids, and they did great in school, and, you know, team MVP, and incredible musicians, and they got the scholarships, and you had the life, and you had the money, and you had the vacation home, and you had everything you wanted, but you didn't have God. You okay with that? See, a lot of us would be. This actually, as stubborn as they were, it cuts them to the heart. Look at verse 4. 
When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, the next little part talks about how Moses used to go and meet with God, but skip down to verse 12, where you see Moses now interacting with God on the basis of what God has said. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. This is Moses saying, listen, God, it's not good enough to just have your promises. We want you. We want you to be with us. Our hope is not in the stuff you give us. It's in you being with us. That's what he's saying. Verse 14 And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And I love this. Moses is so worked up about this. It's almost like he didn't hear God say that. And he just keeps pleading, verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken, I will do. (laughs) Moses, 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 you didn't hear me. I'm coming. I'm going to come. But you get what he's saying. He's saying the thing that makes us distinct as the people of Israel is not that our enemies are defeated. It's not that we have this land of milk and honey. It's that God is with us. It's Emmanuel is what makes us the people of God. God says, okay, I'll, I'll come. I'm coming with you. For you have found favor in my sight, in verse 17, and I know you by name. And then listen, look at this question in verse 18, because this is going to be key in looking back at John 1. Moses said, please show me your glory. God, I, I want to see your glory. The glory of God is his splendor, his radiance, his weightiness, his majesty. God, I, please show me your glory. Show me the essence of who you are. Verse 19, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. You know what God's saying? Moses, you don't know what you're asking for. You want to see my glory? You want to see the essence of who I am? You can't see that and live. That'll kill you. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Here's what God's saying. God's saying, all right, Moses, I'm gonna just tuck you in in this little place and I'm gonna walk by and my glory's gonna be there, but I'm gonna cover you because I don't want you to see, you can't see my face and live. You can't experience the fullness of my glory and live. And so I'll cover you up and you'll get just a little bit of a glimpse of my glory as I pass by. 
It's going to be important in John chapter 1. Now go to Exodus 34. In the first part there, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Moses had thrown a pretty big fit when he got back and everyone had been worshiping this golden image. He threw down the tablets and they broke, so God says, all right, we're going to do those over again. Verse 2, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. By the way, whenever you're reading in your Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament and you see Lord all caps, small caps, it, it is the way of saying Yahweh, the name of God. He proclaimed the name of Yahweh, verse 6. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, here's the name of Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. When God says, here's who I am, he says, I am full of steadfast love and faithfulness. So you've got to have that whole narrative in your mind as now we come back to John chapter 1. Go back to John chapter 1. Remember, what we're saying here is that Jesus is the full revelation of God. Jesus brings what Moses was not able to see. Look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see the significance of that now, having looked at Exodus 33? God, show me your glory. I can't quite do that, Moses. You can't see me and live. But in Jesus coming and tabernacling among us, we have seen his glory. The glory of God is fully revealed in Jesus through his grace and truth. Do you see that in verse 14? Full of grace and truth. Those are the Greek words that are the equivalent of steadfast love and faithfulness. Full of grace. That's steadfast love. God's unearned, unmerited love for you. His kindness toward you. His blessing on you. That's what grace is. That's what steadfast love is. His truth, full of grace and truth, full of faithfulness and righteousness and doing what's right. That's who Jesus is. He is this full revelation of the glory of God, full of his steadfast love, full of his truth. It's interesting as we try to follow after Jesus, 
we struggle to be full of both of those things, don't we? We tend to be people who either like really love grace or really love truth. We struggle to do both. We're like a dog, right? You ever see a dog that has a tennis ball in its mouth, but it gets real excited and it wants another one in there, right? And it goes down for the second tennis ball and it gets it, but the other one drops out. That's kind of how we are. Like, oh, I'm full of grace, oh, but I need some truth and, and I gotta, you know, I can't just kind of let people off the hook all the time. I gotta be truthful. Oh, and then the grace falls out. Not for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the full revelation of God. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He inserts this parenthesis in verse 15 about John the Baptist who bore witness about Jesus and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, this is the eternal God who has come in the flesh. But look at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to get a little bit in the weeds here. So I need you to follow with me and track with me on verses 16 and 17. Because I have for a long time had a difficult time understanding the relationship between verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, for from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. I go, yeah, I get that, right? When God comes in the flesh and he shows the fullness of his glory, the fullness of who he is, wow, that's grace upon grace. I mean, that's overflowing grace. But then verse 17 seems like a random, what's that have to do with verse 16? Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the the reason this has always been a problem for me, because I always thought, that John was saying, the law came through Moses. Boo. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Yeah. Right, that's how I always read it. Like, law bad. Grace and truth, good. And, and so it was like, well, how's that grace upon grace? And, and, and here's what I actually learned, is that that word upon, grace upon grace, actually is a word that, that it, it's the Greek word anti. Grace, grace, anti-grace. Grace in place of grace. In fact, you probably, if you have a printed Bible at least, in verse 16, you've got a little footnote there. Mine is a number four. And if I go down to the footnote, it says, or grace in place of grace. Here's what he's saying. For from his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Get this. He's saying, When Moses came down that mountain with those tablets, that was grace. That was the kindness of God. Not telling them how to earn his favor. He said, you already have my favor. I've already delivered you from the Exodus. I've already told you I'm going to go with you. It's not like, hey, you got to keep these or, or I don't love you anymore. No, this is grace. But in place of that grace is even more grace. Grace upon grace. Grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. Do you get this? Jesus is the full revelation of God. You want to know who God is. You want to know his steadfast love. You want to know his faithfulness. Look to Jesus. So that's the first thing that this unveils about Jesus. The next one's a bit briefer. Secondly, Jesus is the unique revelation of God. The unique revelation of God. Two times this same word is used. It's used in verse 14 and verse 18. 
It says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. If you maybe grew up listening to the King James or something like that, it's only begotten of the father is what it would say. Same words used in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who was at his father's side has made him known. This word only means one and only. Absolutely unique. By the way, I hope you know, this is what unique means. Unique means one of a kind. I always think it's funny when people go, this is really unique. Yeah, it's unique. It's one of a kind. No, but it's really unique. Okay, same thing, right? Anyway, sorry, it's a little language pet peeve of mine. Kind of like, kind of like literally. It's literally really unique. (laughs) Okay, I don't know what that means, but. Jesus is the one and only son from the Father. Jesus is the one and only God who's revealing God to us. He's absolutely, positively, really unique. So don't look elsewhere. If you want to know who God is, you got to look to Jesus. That's who you look for. The author of Hebrews picks up this very same theme. Here's what he says, opening the book of Hebrews. He says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's who Jesus is, the full revelation of God, the unique revelation of God. Are you looking for God elsewhere? Are you looking for God in another prophet? Are you looking for God in God's creation in nature? Are you looking for another revelation of God? Maybe another testament or another book or maybe some ecstatic experience of God or some greater insight that will come through some dramatic moment. Is that where you're looking for God? Listen, God's revealed himself fully through the one and only son. He has spoken definitively done through his son. So look to him. Jesus is the full revelation of God and Jesus is the unique revelation of God. Now there's one part of this verse that we haven't really touched on much yet, but it's so, like this might be one of the hardest things for me to understand or believe in the Bible and it's the beginning of verse 14. The word became flesh. A number of commentators that I read pointed out that a number of other religions and worldviews have taken this idea that at different points, different gods have inhabited a body or have taken on the form of some animal or something like that. But that the word that John uses here is very intentional when it says the word became flesh. There are other ways that he could have said the word wore a body for a while. But he's saying, no, 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 this word became flesh. It's this all-encompassing. It stands for the whole person. Jesus didn't temporarily inhabit a body. Jesus took on flesh permanently forever. The Greeks couldn't 
comprehend this because they viewed this, this word, this logos, as this kind of ideal, invisible, eternal reality, the idea that that, that would become a person. They thought, oh, the body's bad. Jews similarly couldn't wrap their mind around this. They had thought a lot about how no man could become God. They never thought about whether God could become man. And so when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, this is mind-blowing. Just talking personally, this is harder for me to believe than Easter. Because I kind of expect that if God's God, he could rise from the dead right? But I got a 14-month-old son at home who I'm teaching language to. Hank, Hank, get your hands out of your pants. (laughs) Hank, put that away. Hank, don't throw that ball at your sister's face, right? There's all these things like ball, 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 ball. Right? It's easy to imagine God raising from the dead. It's hard to imagine God, Jesus, get your hands out of your pants. <laughs> Jesus, don't roll around in the dirt. <laughs> Jesus, eat your vegetables. Like, that level of humility and weakness and frailty. Because listen, Jesus was not just fully God. He was also fully man. Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom. How does the eternal God grow in wisdom? I don't know. This is crazy. This is amazing. This is why Kostenberger can say, this is the most amazing thing in all of human history. Because it is. It's easy to imagine God as big and glorious and overcoming death. It's hard to imagine God in a weak, frail. Is he breathing okay? Is he he choking? You don't imagine little God like that. It's incredible. And so that insight actually not only tells us about the tremendous humility of Jesus, but it also tells us, it reveals two profound things about us as humanity. The first one is this, the remarkable value of humanity. Think about this. Jesus took on flesh and he will never take it off. When Jesus rose from the dead, how did his disciples figure out that he really was who he said he was? They put their hands in his side And then the holes in his fingers. You know what that tells us? That tells us that the risen Christ, the reigning Christ, is forever in a human body. He's never taking it off. Do you know what that says about the value of humanity and the value of a human body? The body is not just this bad thing like the Greeks thought that someday we'll get to escape it. The body is a good thing created by God that will be remade in the image of God in the new creation. That means that everybody, everybody, everybody is incredibly valuable if Jesus was willing to take that on. And it means that our bodies will go on after the resurrection forever 
Recently was talking to someone that lost a family member and they were asking me questions about heaven and they were asking questions like, questions we all ask, we all think about, like, well, when I get to heaven, will they recognize me? Will we know each other? I know that God will wipe away our tears, but will we still have emotions? A lot of good questions. And, and, and the thing that came to me in that moment, I feel like it was just from God, and it, I think encouraged her. I said, listen, here's the question. In the new heavens and the new earth, will we be more human or less human? More human. So yes, she'll remember you. And yes, she'll feel a full range of emotions, more than you've ever felt here. You'll be more alive than you ever imagined in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because that's what Jesus is saying is happening in humanity. Our bodies will be resurrected. These are valuable bodies we carry around. Here's a second remarkable thing this tells us is the devastating need of humanity. So yes, there's remarkable value in humanity if Jesus is willing to take on this, this body. But it also tells us the devastating need. Why did Jesus have to come? Well, the answer was back in chapter 1, verse 12. So that we could become children of God. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus had to take on a body. Jesus had to live as a human being because, listen, every human being had failed to follow God and to trust God. Humanity needed a perfect representative, someone who was not just a representative of what humanity could be, but who was truly human. A truly human person had to obey God, had to live faithfully before God, had to be obedient to God, to be our representative before him. And in the wonder of the gospel, that same truly human Jesus also paid the penalty for our sins that we deserved. This tells us the devastating need of humanity. We could not save ourselves. We could not make ourselves children of God. We could not get to God. God had to come to us. One of my favorite professors in my uh, seminary program is a guy named Mike Williams. Here's what he writes in his book, Far as the Curse is Found. He says, the God of all creation, the God who measures out the heavens in the span of his hand and sifts out the galaxies as you might sprinkle salt on your evening meal, had long ago determined that there was but one way that his sin-scarred world could be cleansed of the corruption of sin. God must become man in order to suffer the penalty of sin and guilt. God must come embodied in history as the one who saves. So listen, stop thinking you're better than other people. Stop thinking that you can get your way to God. No, no, you can't. God had to come to you. What humility in Jesus, what grace, what kindness, what mercy. Do you see how this is the most amazing thing ever? really is. <laughs> I love what St. Augustine said as he reflected on the incarnation. He said this, man's maker was made man. 
that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Why? Well, we might just reflect on what Augustine said and say that Jesus did that so that the hungry may have bread, so that the thirsty may have a fountain, so that those asleep may have a light, that the lost may find the way, the false may live in truth, the fools may astound the wise, the worthless may find their worth, that the weak may be strong, that the wounded may be healed, that the dead may live again. That's why he came. That's what Christmas is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Let's pray. Love incarnate, love divine. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We lift you up. We exalt you. We rejoice in you. We delight in you. We acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that you are the one and only God, the full revelation of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you that we get now to behold your glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you humbled yourself, that the bread became hungry, that life died. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that you give us eyes to see the magnitude of what that means, that we might find the life that is truly life in you. Amen.